The photography still kind of drives my destinations, but then I'd like to write about what I've seen. I think the more you can understand animals and appreciate what they're doing, I think you can get better photos out of that as a result. I figured the RV was going to be the best way for me to, to get to these places. Bought the second one that I was in and had no clue to what I was doing. And I jackknifed it in the boat launch of the, the lake. Now it's probably like nine o'clock at night. It's pitch black out. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm only a week, two weeks into this. I just slept there. I slept in the boat launch. It was by far the most amazing thing I've ever done. Welcome to Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. For this week's show, your hosts are Ron Hayes and myself, Mark Raycroft. And we have a special guest who we'll introduce to you shortly. Michael is busy filming on assignment in Atlanta this week, and he should be rejoining the podcast for our next episode. Ron, how's winter progressing in Wyoming? It's going good. It's been steady. It was uh, this morning I... I walked to work and it said that it was 14 degrees. So I didn't put a hat on. Sorry, a toque for you Canadians. Thank you for clarifying. Didn't didn't do any of that. Just took off walking. And by the time I got to work, my head felt like it was going to implode. It was about five below at the wind chill, which doesn't sound too bad. But all I had on was a basically a sweatshirt and a vest and no hat, so it got a little bit cool. So we are again finally seeing winter, and I'm I'm happy about it. Good. Well, it's good you've got that snow base like you were talking about. Or is there much snow yeah, at the moment finally. as well? Yeah, okay. we still have still have snow on the ground, so that part's good. Does it look like it's going to stay cold? Are you going to get out in the near future to try for some wildlife photography? Oh yeah, yeah. The cold is better actually. So sure. I. Uh, I am going to venture out here later this week and then this weekend again. Good stuff. Well, we look forward to hearing about it. It's definitely still winter here. It's bone chilling cold, but we have plenty of fresh snow to make for stunning wintry landscapes. I uh, escaped the office for a few hours today and had a cool hike, walked through some woods and studying the winter landscape and looking for tracks and just basically giving my eyes a rest from the arm's length screen that stares at me most of the winter. And I got lucky today. Guess what I found? A track. I, I saw, I did. I found <laughs> lots of tracks. I found turkey tracks. I found deer tracks. I found a matching set of antlers. Oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. A big set. 12 points, 6 by 6. from that. One of the best finds ever. Matching set. So, well worth the hike. To uh, me, it's so incredibly cool to do these treasure hunts and to hold the solid bone that were grown and used by these whitetail. This is whitetail deer, of course, here in Ontario. For, for their rut, for their mating season, as their expression of their health, their age, their genetic capabilities... You know, they've carried these all year. Shed recently had to be within the past week or two. So it's a pretty cool treasure for me to find. I'm surprised you don't have them on, actually. Just, <laughs> well, just, to, just to further taunt us. 
I should. I should have them here to show to you. This is an audio podcast. So, yeah, if it, if it was video as well, and we do record the Skype feed, you know, maybe someday it'll be put up somewhere somehow. But if it was video, I would have fashioned up a hat somehow. I, I don't know. It would have taken a I lot of duct no tape to hold those big ones up. But uh, otherwise, I'm still knee-deep in editing season. And here's here's a stat that I find mind-blowing and is can explain why I'm somewhat my eyes are crossed these days. Uh, we managed to take 35,000 new raw images from this autumn's wildlife adventures and select and prep 1,000 new high-res for marketing this spring. <sighs> you know, I love each individual image and and the rem remembering that moment in time, taking it, but digital photography, as amazing as it is to create such a wealth of imagery nowadays, wading through so when there's a burst and there's 20 once an animal does a behavior that we want to document finding the sharpest one finding the uh just it takes so much time you know what you see is what you get with a slide you had no choice but a lot of images were tossed because of that compared to the success uh, percentage for digital so it just takes a long time to wade through those images and, and prep those. And a thousand, well, it sounds insane. It sounds like a lot, but for a lot of different markets, you need different compositions, different styles of images, uh, portraits, behaviors, a variety of wildlife. And I want to make sure that my clients receive a lot of fresh material each year that way. So Pilly and I also have some field trips planned for this coming week. So hopefully we'll have some new winter images, stories, and YouTube vlogs to share with our listeners in the near future. On this week's podcast, I mentioned a guest earlier, we are delighted to have professional photographer Don Wilson join us. But before we introduce Don, we'll squeeze in our weekly pro tips as well as the question of the week. So my pro tip for this week is don't, I repeat, don't review your images in the middle of a shoot. Or even if you think it's the end of the shoot and you are just letting your focus go. Instead, even if you think you took the photo of a lifetime, resist. You have no idea what your subject will do next. That's what wildlife is about, the unpredictability. I mean, sure, we study animal behavior and we do our best to try and figure out what they're going to do next to, to compose an image and be ready. But we, even the most experienced professional wildlife photographers are frequently surprised. So while your eyes are scanning the file, that grizzly could have stood up, scent marked, or that bull moose could have raised its monstrous rack and lip curled. So save the reviews for the vehicle or the restaurant after the shoot. And, you know, don't don't even scan through on the back of the camera at all. Stay focused. And, there, you know, there are times when an animal's doing something and it may appear like it's not going to present an opportunity. I have missed so many when my camera was not poised and ready to shoot up near my face, have it down, whatever. So... My pro tip is to really stay focused, stay in the game, and keep an eye on your subject. As long as it's there and the light's good, you do not know for sure what it's going to do, and you don't want to miss that opportunity and be kicking yourself later for what happened, and there's no images to show it. So don't look at the photos, and don't talk to your buddies, and don't text. Don't get your smartphone out, and just stay in the game with your camera. Ron, what's your pro tip for this week's podcast? Well, I had a couple thoughts, but I think what I've what I've settled on this week is I've had a lot of questions from people about how what's the best way to improve your photography, what's the quickest way to improve your photography. And again, this isn't a question of the week, but I thought it would be a good pro tip. 
So for those, it, it kind of depends. There's, there's kind of two different avenues of people that go into wildlife photography. One is people who know the wildlife and they just want to document what they see, what they get to see when they're in the field. And the other is people who are maybe nature enthusiasts, um, but they don't typically have, or they don't have the wildlife background. So it's two different, two different responses, two different avenues for me on those. And, and what I would say for a pro tip for that person, who's the wildlife enthusiast, you've got the advantage of having that field craft. So you know what to do in the field, how to get close to the animals close enough to get the images. So for you, I would say the quickest way to improve your photography is to learn your camera and don't be afraid to go down to the camera store, take a, take a class on digital photography, uh, maybe, you know, a two, three hour class and you're going to have a, a good idea how to get started. Now it's going to take some time to master your camera, master its capabilities, but that will give you a leg up in, uh, as to what you would have had, had you just done it on your own. For those of you who come from the other side and you have a mastery of your camera, a lot of even uh, studio photographers like to go out and photograph nature. For you guys, I would say just the opposite. You know your camera, and the quickest way for you to improve your wildlife photography is just to go spend time in the field. And I would, I would recommend strongly, let's say for bird enthusiasts, if you've got an Audubon Society chapter in your community, chances are you have groups of people that go out and do bird walks from time to time. That's a great avenue to go and learn what's out there, learn behavior, learn how to identify these birds, sometimes even by sound. So it's, it gives you two different uh, two different avenues, but I think that would give you a leg up in either of those either of those backgrounds, give you a leg up in improving your wildlife photography quickly. I love it. A, a take two take pro tip i mean coming from two perspectives and merging it together ah i have a split personality so it really wasn't that. <laughs> some days you're the animal behavior some <laughs> days you're the camera pro <laughs> not a stretch really <laughs> that's awesome i love it for this week's question of the week it comes from kevin on instagram and he has a question regarding prince he wants to know what medium I personally find, or that we at Wild and Exposed personally find works best for wildlife photos. And he's referring to photo finishes. He wants to know if we prefer a matte finish or a gloss. He wants to get into printmaking. He has a wildlife library of images. And he's wondering, he's, he's queried a bunch of people, and he's 50-50 on those that he's asked on matte or gloss finished. And he's never ordered anything with a gloss finish yet but seems, some seem to think it looks better than Matt for wildlife. Thanks in advance, Kevin. Ron, what do you have to say about Matt versus glossy or luster? Well, to be completely 100% honest about it, I, I very rarely do um, paper prints anymore. I use My go-to is acrylic, and I, I just like the acrylic finish. Mark's shaking his head because he has a different opinion. It, it is expensive, but it gives you a very stable, well-protected image if you're, if you're not going to put glass on it. 
So that's been my go-to for the high-end prints that you're going to do. In doing paper prints, I typically print a mat. And I'll... Yes, I do. I have never... I'm going to say that with capital N-E-V-E-R, printed <laughs> mat. Never. This is very interesting. This is going to go somewhere. Some uh, folks listen in. <laughs> so it's Mine's almost... All glossy or luster. I only offer glossy or luster for prints, but... I discourage people, myself, from my own opinion, from having paper prints made now. And I do, I, I love canvas for the rustic feel, the ready to hang for the durable material for the reproduction. And for those that really ask me what to get it done on, who approach me for an enlargement, I say, if you can afford it, it is more expensive, but there's nothing like HD metal nowadays and i hear what you're saying with acrylic and it's close the presentation to metal is close and i've only had a couple of acrylics done um there were sales on and just to experiment with that and the company that i had print them it had uh almost i don't know if it was a third of an inch of acrylic on it and to me it was too much that's, of a barrier that's too much yeah you can get the fins now and they're they're a lot more uh manageable because those big thick ones get really heavy on the wall too and the True. danger is, is they pull completely out. So, well, we've got a few things to touch on, but before we get ahead on on, on these modern high end prints that are truly the way to go now, um, this is something you're gonna, people are going to look at for years on a wall, especially if it's a big one. It's worth the difference to me than than a paper print. But let's let's hash this out between matte and glossy. Why are you a matte guy? I am a matte guy because it just gives it that little tiny bit of texture. So the thing I like about canvas is it does it does have a little bit of texture to the print, and a matte print when done well. And I use I use a, a lab called McGreevy Pro Lab in New York, uh, which is odd for a Wyoming guy. It's they're a little bit more expensive, but they do check your your color correction, um, so they make sure that what they print, what you get back, is going to be a quality image, as well as if if it doesn't come out come off the printer perfect, they're not going to send it to you. They're going to redo it. Uh, so they're very reliable. And the reason I like the mat, like I said, is just there's that little fine bit of texture. It's almost like adding a little bit of clarity to the image in uh, in Lightroom or Photoshop. And Mark's shaking his head. He's uh, I don't say that. More, it makes me sound impolite here now. He's he's a little bit more uh, refined, so he likes that glossy, that glossy look. Ooh, he probably ooh. has patent leather shoes. I don't know. Well, for those that have seen <laughs> me in the field, my hiking boots are leather. There you go. <laughs> Not, because that's the best as far as durability. Anyway, I Not like shiny. that pop. I like this shiny pop and color of gloss and luster. I don't even offer clients, Matt. It's not out there. So, sorry. I mean, it's just to me, and I'm not I'm not trying. It's not personal. Kind of is, but not really. Matt, oh, Matt sounds like flat. It's like no color. It's flat. And I want my images to be striking on the wall. And But I do, I am well aware, you're not alone. I know there are a lot of people who do like matte prints. And for some reason that my vision does not appreciate they think it's more realistic or something but to me i like the gloss the luster the pop of color on an image can, can we agree to disagree or should we keep going 
No, I agree. I like color too. I okay. just like matte. Okay. All and right. it's not flat. It's, it's not? Texture. It always no. looks that way to me. Okay, so so would you say would you say matte is more of a traditional art look than glossy? Would that be an accurate description from where how you in, envision it? Yes, and I guess for for me, if if I was going to do a glossy print, it would just be on metal. Well, that's yeah, that's where we're going with this conversation. I just wanted to uh, outline why the two hosts on Wild and Exposed today have very different perspectives on this, and just touch on it a bit more. I just feel glossy represents color so much better for nature, natural light. Um, but that's that's where I sit in my view. So. You'll recommend Matt to Kevin. And it's interesting because in his question, he says his answers are 50-50 that he's collected from people. So I guess that still stands for today. I like glossy, but as far as uh, clients, when they contact me for an enlargement, um, I definitely try my best to encourage them for a canvas if they like the rustic look because it's ready to hang. And to me, it stands off the wall and is more striking than a framed um, paper print or HD metal. It's interesting, I have a, a client I'm communicating with right now that wants uh, it a, a 24 by 36 moose, right? A moose, surprisingly, actually. Why not? Printed on bamboo. Wants oh. it printed on bamboo. Now, I've researched that this week, and this is interesting. I've, there's this company in California, they print on birch wood, and when they print on birch wood, it's a direct-to-wood process but anything white in the photo appears as the wood texture it's gone so every image will have a different look on birch and every piece of wood is different so to be honest i'm biting my fingernails a little bit about this and you'd have to experiment with an image and send it to know what it'd be like but what they requested from me was it be printed on bamboo so when i called the company and inquired about it they were very good customer service what i was unaware of is they just printed on paper and adhere it to the bamboo so that there's bamboo around the perimeter. So that's just a paper print with a, a natural wood finish around it. I truly like the metal the best, HD metal. And I, just out of curiosity, what is it about acrylic that you prefer over metal, Ron? It's not necessarily the finish. I think they, both products look pretty similar. Acrylic looks a little bit darker than metal, and it's not as not as vibrant. The only problem that I've had with metal is about half of them, when you get them, they're damaged because that aluminum is so flimsy and soft that I get them and they're bent. I got the last one that I got, actually, the driver of the uh, FedEx truck, it fell back just against a little corner shelf and it put a divot in the, okay. in the print. Now, the, the company that I, the printer replaced it. And obviously, they'll have to do the recovery from FedEx. But I've had a lot of them get damaged. And even if you set them down wrong, and I've got, I've actually got one on my wall right now that's a 24 by 36, and it's a vertical. And it, the top of it is actually bending forward. You can see a, a distinct kind of boomerang shape starting to take place. So now that, that was a problem historically, but did you get a metal backing with them? Yes. Now I will, I will say that I got the smaller one. So it's a 24 by 36 print, but the, the backer is only about 12 by 18. So 
I think if you got the full frame, they have them with a, like a full frame along the outside now. I think that's a lot more solid and stable. You just, you know, you might pay a little bit extra for it, but it is a lot more stable than, than the small uh, cleat hanger that they typically provide. So there are, yeah, there are some options there. You know, I've, I've had great luck with metal, my friend. Um, I want to stay friends with you here, but um, I've, you know, I had 50 medals done and I haven't had one come damaged. Uh, the companies, I'll say in a moment, the companies that I've used and they've, uh, packaging's been impressive. And in fact, clients of mine all over North America, I've had feedback because I always query and say, did you get it? How was it? Many have commented on how well they've been packaged by these companies. And like Ron was alluding to earlier, it doesn't matter where really in North America you order these products from. Shipping is is quite affordable now for what you're getting to. So it's worth researching the best printing companies to do it. And on my metal frames, um, the 24 by 36 is, and 16 by 24 are usually my go-tos. I prefer the 24 by 36 with metal. It just stands out on the wall that much better than the smaller. But the bracketing on, along the back, that is something you have to add on when you place your order, covers the whole width or height, depending on the longest dimension of the print. And I've had mine up for years and haven't had a problem yet. So like Ron said, you know, pick the make sure you pick the backing that covers the majority of the metal, but it can just be, you know, four rods that fasten together with the metal wire connecting it in the middle, perhaps. So, and that was about 35 or $40 add on price. So not a big deal. And a 16 by 24 is, you know, not too bad. I mean, cost you're looking at 250 or something like that. I, I believe if memory serves, but what I want to mention is there are four companies that I use regularly and why I use four is so far, they all have produced outstanding product, but it's a very competitive industry. So they're always trying to outcompete one another price-wise. And they do offer, like I said, a great product. So by watching these companies, if there's, a, if there's an image that you want done, and it doesn't matter if it's paper print, if you have to go there, or matte even if you have to go there, or canvas, or metal, or acrylic, they have sales virtually monthly. You know, if it's Valentine's Day, they're going to have a sale. If it's New Year's, sale. You know, St. Patrick's Day, woo sale. And it's because it's such a competitive marketplace. The companies that I have used personally um, that I've had good results with, each one, uh, White House Custom Color, and they have different places around the U.S. I think their main place is out of um, Minnesota. Bay Photo in California, um, Art in San Francisco area, Artbeat Studio studios in i believe los angeles and then for canadian clients i use poster jack in toronto and i've had great product myself with with all four of those companies and it's just a matter of watching price point and deciding on, on what you want to go with as far as from where i sit when i place orders for clients or myself that way as far as enlargements so, Kevin, I want to thank you for the question of the week. It was a good one. It's something we haven't covered before. And I want to encourage our listeners to send in any questions that you may have, no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert, and we will do our best to answer them all. And we'll feature one on each podcast as the question of the week. I would like to welcome Don Wilson to the podcast. Don is a very accomplished professional photographer who grew up on the East Coast, but moved to Colorado in 2002 and now calls that Rocky Mountain State home. Her list of accomplishments is both long and impressive. 
She has won numerous awards for her photography, which has been published in an array of magazines and calendars, and more. Dawn has written for many publications, including the acclaimed Outdoor Photographer magazine. And she has also hosted many shows in a variety of galleries. Dawn was also recognized as a top 10 female nature photographer to watch by Wild Planet Photo Magazine. And to top it all off, she also has an MBA. That's impressive. Welcome, Dawn, to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And I'm going to throw in there one more thing. One more thing. On your website, your tagline is photos of wildlife at high latitudes and high altitudes. And that's something I personally agree with. Welcome. Hello, guys. How's it going, Don? It's going very well. I heard you guys got pounded with snow down there. We had a dusting here in Estes Park yesterday that was gone by the afternoon. Oh, really? Yeah, Denver got hit pretty good, but we got a, a, just a light dusting from that storm. Wow. Well, that's good, I guess. Keeps life simple. <laughs> So, Ron, you met Dawn before. You you know one another. Yeah, share I, that with our audience. You're meeting. Well, I visited with Dawn on, actually came across each other on social media. And then uh, this fall, uh, when Mike and I were up photographing elk in the in the Rockies, in the Colorado Rockies, I, I met Dawn, was able to meet her face-to-face, and we visited. And, yeah, we've had several conversations since have a you know obviously a lot in common although i'm more of a home state guy i don't do a ton of long-term traveling which i hope we'll get into a little bit uh with don but she's very accomplished in her travel photography and wildlife from several different areas so what what about colorado i mean i i get it i've been there a number of times the mountains are beautiful the climate is appealing the aspens in autumn are almost second to none. I, there are places that are similar, but it's definitely top. So why Colorado? Why did you settle there? Um, I had actually looked at going to veterinary school out here. That was how I kind of got my foot in the door out here in Fort Collins at Colorado State University. Decided to um, go after my MBA instead. And when I finished that, I knew I would wind up moving out here. So it was mostly a lifestyle um, just the outdoors, being able to to hike, you know, to be an hour from beautiful 14,000 foot mountains was just an unbelievable opportunity that I completely took advantage of. I get it. Nice. I've, I've seen it. And Estes Park is beautiful. So and how long have you been a professional photographer? So I was a professional probably since about 2010 was when I really started selling on a regular basis. Um, but I've been doing photography ever since I was a kid. When did you start writing? Same thing as a kid. I can remember oh, you know, really? writing short stories. Um, in college, I had a couple of articles published. I was a communications major, so um, it was a big part of, of the program was to do a lot of writing, news reporting, writing, different types of stories. But what was interesting is that back on the East Coast, it was very heavy in hard news, You know, kind of going after financial news or, you know, top news of the day, that kind of thing. And I kind of wish I had, in hindsight, kind of looked at all the opportunities that travel photography and travel writing had out there, nature writing. Um, so that was kind of, you know, a nice mix of moving to Colorado allowed me to kind of get that together with the writing and the photography while still having a tie-in with the, the outdoors. Nice. 
So I saw on your website, I mean, you do travel photography in addition to wildlife and nature. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that wildlife and nature is a stronger passion, but you're very good at the travel photography as well. The travel photography still centers on wildlife. Pretty much everything I do is driven by a destination that has some appeal to me for either an animal I've never seen, for a location that just has stunning landscapes that can get good wildlife in it. So I guess the photography still kind of drives my destinations, but then I'd like to write about what I've seen. Mm -hmm. I I saw on your website that you are now offering workshops on how to use social media for marketing for photographers. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook. I am very familiar with Instagram and somewhat uh, almost actually not really familiar with Facebook, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> but becoming more so. And I, But Twitter, you know, I have many friends and more editorial clients, really, that I know of that use Twitter. But I haven't even that's not even on my radar. What about Twitter appeals to you as a potential marketing tool for a wildlife or nature photographer? I'm just not familiar with it as far as its potential. What would you say to that? Or can you help me understand whether it's worth doing in addition to Instagram and some Facebook? I would be honest that over the years, I've done less with Twitter. Um, I've certainly done more with Facebook and Instagram. You know, Twitter to me is a great way to do a real quick blurb that drives people back to either your Facebook page or your website. Um, Because the the limitation of the number of characters, I think, is kind of constricts you a little bit and how much you can put on there. But of course, in this day and age of visual content, throw a photo on there, say, hey, I'm offering this program or I'm going to be here giving a presentation and then drive them to a website with additional info. Wow, that's great. So and it's, so it's not as effective as it might have been five years ago, you would say, Twitter, because of these other platforms becoming so much larger or an Instagram being so visually driven. I assume it, it's obviously, the, in your opinion, is it the best for social marketing for nature photographers of these three social media platforms? I would definitely say Instagram's the, the, the best option out there today. You know, I like the, in Instagram and Facebook, I like the flexibility of using hashtags and the, the ability to link into other people's pages. And in, a, in this very large world that's become very small, that's a great way to connect with others and share your work. Twitter has the limitations, again, back to that limitation of how many characters you can put in a post that you really can't do a lot of those. So that you know, using, using the web, you know, kind of spreading out a little bit just isn't there on Twitter. Right. Right. But it could still attract that audience that may just be on Twitter and direct them toward your other pages. That's smart. So your communications in undergrad have an MBA. What, what led you to the wildlife? So as I mentioned, I was, I had consider going to veterinary school. That was actually what I wanted to do growing up. I always wanted to be a vet. I always liked being around animals. I always just had an interest in learning about animals. But I also liked the creative aspects that drove me into communications, the writing, the photography, the you know, the video work, although that wasn't a, a huge thing at the time. It has become much bigger. So as I went into communications, I found being on the East Coast, I started working in medical publishing, working in veterinary medical products, um, and it just kind of kept leading into it. But I always felt like something was missing. So with the move to Colorado, I really kind of started saying that, you know, now I'm here. Now I can actually experience it. Now I can get out there and find a way to combine all of that. So the nature photography, as well as the writing, allows me to, to use the experience and the, the knowledge and training that I have in writing and photography and the visual communication, the visual arts 
while still allowing me to get outdoors, enjoy the outdoors, enjoy being around animals, observing their behavior. Behavior is a huge part of nature photography or wildlife photography. I think the more you can understand animals and appreciate what they're doing, I think you can get better photos out of that as a result. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of, it's all been just a way to kind of combine it all together, I guess. You know, professionally speaking, that's something over the history of my career and, and a handful of my friends that enjoy writing as well as photography. It's one of the best marriages of skills for the publication world. Uh, historically, print media like magazines and now online forums and magazines. But editors loved when we were able and still do to offer a package of images and, and text to complement all with one source. Mm -hmm. And there are friends of mine who have done very well as a career that way, instead of just trying to do photos or writing. But that marriage of the two is is a trade secret. Well, I think, too, when you're out in the field, you can actually think about a story. I mean, like a couple weekends ago, I was out. I was up in um, northern Minnesota and the whole and I do hope to kind of pitch a couple articles idea ideas out of it. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about what photos will, su will support the article and what am I going to write in the article that I now need to get photos for? So you're working in tandem together. Whereas if, if it's two separate people that aren't there at the same time, you run the risk of either not getting the right details to include in the article or you're not going to capture the right photos to support the, the content and the visual means that, that you're trying to communicate. And Mike's talked a lot about that with video, just trying to think in the moment, think about what you're going to need later. And so that's a, yeah, that's a unique perspective it's not unique in that it covers both realms but it is unique in that again that you you're you're thinking outside the box as a photographer even or or a writer and and thinking in both worlds living in both worlds it's like creating b-roll right you've got to tell the story with the yeah. videos with the vlogs whereas this yeah you're you're putting the words to the images and creating a story or something informative animal behavior whatever it might be or location specific all right. kinds of options, but yeah, that, that's a talent and that's a skill set that comes with time and adds challenge, but also adds a level of excitement and thrill to it to be able to put that together as a package. I mean, it's like doing a book on a smaller scale for an article. Exactly. Stuff, all of this. So that's cool that you do that. I haven't met many photographers that do that uh, participate in both. So there's, and there's also, you know, a lot of times, you know, we go out in the field and we all, we're trying to get those cover shots. We're trying to get that, you know, the beautiful light and that stunning image and that great behavior. And we definitely want to pursue those. But if you're thinking about an article, you also need to think about, all right, well, I might need to get a photo of a sign or I might need to get a photo of people out there watching the elk during the rut or something. So there's other aspects that are never going to win you a photo contest, but they're really good for helping to communicate that story as a whole. Sure. Yeah, it's a great behind the scenes, all those opportunities. Yeah. So what are your favorite subjects to photograph? Do you Are you a generalist as far as wherever you are, you're opportunistic with the landscape if the light's nice or if a bison walks past or a fox or are there certain species that appeal to you more than others? I had a, um, I took a class once and I, I know he's not officially a mentor, but I certainly go to him. Um, somebody that's really been inspirational to me from a perspective of photography and, and how he's run his business. But I used to, he used to tell me, he's like, I can't go out in the field with you because he's, he's primarily landscape and lifestyle. He's like, cause if an animal runs in front of us, it's just, you're going to be so sidetracked. But, um, but it is, it's, you know, wildlife is the passion. And then if I narrow it down to species, I definitely love photographing the brown bears up in Alaska. 
I love photographing fox if I can find them. You know, we've really had a, a decline in the population here in Colorado recently over the last few years as development has has exploded. We've seen a lot of change in populations of, of certain animals, and fox are definitely one of them. Bald eagles, I think, are another one that I really enjoy photographing, and bighorn. I think big, it's, so. Those are the four. Yeah, if I, sure. And I could keep going, but um, sure. yeah, bighorn are always kind of fun too. Correct me if I'm wrong. A couple of years ago, you had you won the Wyoming Wildlife Photo Contest with a fox image, right? I did. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, those were those were actually two. It was um, mm-hmm. two fox that were. Kind of, it was during mating season, so it was really nice. You know, it was fresh snow and those nice thick red winter coats, and yeah, that yeah. was a that was a really nice day. So you've done something very cool that appeals to a lot of people. And most people, for one reason or another, lifestyle, commitments, family, finances, can't pull the plug and do it. But you, I read on your website, had an epic adventure where you stopped your day-to-day life and for 15 months traveled to wilderness destinations just to photograph and experience these destinations in an RV. Mm-hmm. So obviously I, this creates a whole bunch of questions and I'll try just to say one at a time <laughs> <laughs> and, and if any of them are too nosy, then just stop me. Cause that's not where I want to go. But out of curiosity with somebody who's tantalized by this idea of having a, a, an RV, that's like a mobile office with all your gear, it's comfortable enough. And to experience these destinations in North America, it's so easy to, to map a route around North America that could run 12 months a year and be amazing, incredible destinations just to be in through those months. So what sparked you to do this? How did it get on your radar? And and, and what about it made you decide, you know what, I'm going for it. And, and you did this. I mean, I want to hear about the trip itself. But before we get into the specifics of that, what was it that motivated you to to embark on this adventure. So even though I love living in Colorado, I love to travel too. I love to experience new places. I know I love, I just love to explore. I love to, you know, and, and in hindsight, I kind of wish even when I lived in New Jersey that I did explore more, that I didn't kind of get wrapped up in, in work and that kind of thing. So I had kind of started over the years as I got more and more into photography, I started making a list of, oh, I gotta go here. I'd read an article. Oh, I've got to go there. No, this is an animal I'd like to see. Um, and this list started getting really, really long. I mean, I, I'm sure we all have those lists. We all have those dream destinations. We have places we'd like to experience. We like we have, you know, bird migration experiences that we'd like to witness. So the list was getting pretty long. But, you know, finances are what they are. Time, you're working. You know, you only have so much time off to do these things. And then in 2012, I had I lost um, unexpectedly my partner of 15 years, he, he passed away in October, early October that year. And, and all of a sudden life really changed for me. It was, you're, you're now questioning life. You're questioning what you're doing. Do you love what you're doing? And I didn't, I was not really happy with, with where I was professionally or the things I was pursuing. And then three months later, my dad died unexpectedly as well. And I basically said, screw corporate life. I didn't want to do it anymore. In March of that year, I quit my full-time job to pursue photography and writing full-time. But I had I did buy a house outside of Denver. And with the way the Denver market was going, the, the housing market was going like gangbusters. So all of a sudden, I had you know gained a 50% profit on my house. And it was enough to now buy an RV and travel for what I thought was, was going to be probably about six months. So I 
So what I did is I sold the house in September of 2015. I used the money to buy a 24-foot Class C RV. I had never owned an RV. I had never driven an RV. I didn't know what a Class C RV was until about two weeks earlier. I really took a a leap of faith that I, you know, I could do this, that I could pursue it. But it was something that, you know, I figured the RV was going to be the best way for me to to get to these places. The beauty of an RV is that you can park pretty close to where you want to be. You can be there for sunrise. You can be there for sunset. You can be there for when the weather's changing. And then you have everything with you. You have all your food. You have your clothes. You have your camera equipment. You have your office with you. So you can work right off the road. So yeah, so I took a took a leap of faith. I literally only test drove two RVs and bought the second one that I was in and had no clue to what I was doing. None. <laughs> well, I, I want to say I'm sorry for your losses. And, and it does give us perspective very abruptly and quickly when that happens. But yes, I, applaud yes. your, I applaud your courage to follow your dream and to, and to explore and to, and to try that. So, I mean, I can't wait to hear the details, but was it amazing? Was it good? It was, it was by far the most amazing thing I've ever done. You know, I was scared to death when I started. They, I still remember the day that, um, that I, I picked up the RV. They basically hand you, a, hand you your keys that was something I was not aware of, that if you buy one of these big Class A 40-foot RVs, you don't need a special license to drive it. They hand you your keys. You don't even have to take a special class to learn how to manage it or anything. They give you an hour tour of the rig or whatever you want to label it as. And they say, have fun. And that was what I did. So I kind of started out um, close. So at that time, I was up in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I started out kind of local. I went to Mount Evans. Um, I went to places that I was really familiar with in case there was a problem. I knew where to go for resources. I knew where to go to, you know, I had people in the area that could help me. And then little by little, I just kind of kept getting further and further away. And, and next thing you know, I'm just driving all over the place. So did for somebody who's thinking about planning potentially something like this, there are these decisions to wait. Did you sell everything or did you put in storage? It was like a clean cut and you just go RVing and nothing's back behind you or how did you handle that part of it, if you don't mind me asking? So I did. So when I sold the house, I thought I sold, you know, when, when people say they go on the road, they sell everything. I thought I was selling pretty much everything. Um, you know, I still had, I, like I said, I was only planning on doing it for about six months. And I figured I'd buy a house, you know, when I got back off the road and kind of start back up in life again and or in traditional life again. And um, because so thought everything would fit in one storage unit and it didn't. So I wound up last minute getting a second storage unit. Then I kind of, since then have kind of condensed down from that. And now I'm back up to now there's more stuff in storage. I'm still trying to get rid of, of that sure. stuff. So if you ever do it yeah, there's no point in keeping sofas and things that you think you're going to use because what wound up specifically happening to me is I did wind up on the road a lot longer than I expected. And the housing market went like crazy so the houses became so expensive in Colorado when I got back that it completely changed what my plans were for kind of reestablishing myself. So you never know what's going to happen. So there's really no point in keeping, I mean, I still have stuff that I don't know what to do with. It's just, um, <laughs> it's not worth paying the money for it. Sure. So take us on the journey then. Where did you go after Colorado and, and what amazing wildlife encounters and photography did you collect on your trip? So in Colorado, I spent probably the first two weeks in Colorado. Like I said, I started out in Mount Evans. Then it was getting in, because it was September, it was getting into fall colors. I went down to Aspen, photographed some of the fall colors down that way. I went up to, I actually have a, you know, kind of a fun story. You talk about things that you only would experience in an RV. 
because you are, you know, in a campground in a national park or in a state park or something. One of the first places I stayed was um, Sylvan Lake State Park, which is outside of Eagle, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful place. Not a huge place. Like I said, it was fall colors. It was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I remember out one night photographing this rain, you know, it was raining and this rainbow kind of appeared. And I've got photos of fishermen along the lake and stuff. But like I said, I was very green at doing this. So I, I towed a, a Jeep behind behind the RV and I had a kayak on the Jeep to do a lot of photography from the water so I could photograph animals and landscapes from the position of being in the boat. And so I took the kayak out into the lake. I know it was probably about five, maybe a little bit later than that, you know, six, six thirty. So I could get some sunset shots, some late afternoon shots, came back in and it was almost dark. So I, I was like, let me hook the Jeep up. I'll just put the, the kayak back on the, on the Jeep and just be ready to roll first thing in the morning. Well, it, like I said, it was dark and I jackknife. I didn't know you couldn't back up the Jeep without jackknifing it. And I jackknife it in the boat launch of the, the lake. So now it's like eight, nine, it's probably like nine o'clock at night. It's pitch black out now. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm only a week, two weeks into this. I just slept there. I slept in the boat launch. And by doing that in the middle of the night, I started hearing something on the roof and it turned out it was a great horned owl teaching. So there was a post out in the water. It looked like it had been an old dock or something. Um, it was teaching its fledglings to hunt. And they were using the top of the RV to actually, it's kind of like a staging point to launch off of. You could hear them hooting. And it was just an amazing experience. And I have so many experiences like that because of being out there in the RV that you would just never have being in a house or, you know, a townhouse or something. So that convinced me that I was absolutely doing the right thing. So, so the next morning when the sun came up, I just, I unhooked the Jeep and, you know, kind of separated everything, moved it back and it was, was fine. Thankfully there wasn't any state park rangers that came along and kind of asked me what I was doing there. But so from there, I started heading north. I actually drove out towards, I kept driving west, um, drove into Utah, went north, wound up back in um, Wyoming, went up to Grand Teton, Yellowstone, did some stuff up there. And then from there, then I actually came back to Colorado because it was elk rut. So I came back to photograph the rut. So that was, would have been early October. So five weeks into my trip, and I swore I was going to do this by myself. I was, you know, fearless woman. Nobody's going to stop me from doing this. I met this guy who I was trying to level my RV in Rocky Mountain National Park. And um, he proceeded to come up and ask me if I needed help. I'm like, absolutely not. Go away. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm fine. I've got this. And next thing I know, we're talking. And we talked for hours that day, absolutely hours. And we're still together to this day. That was kind of unexpected. I mean, there's just been a lot of unexpected things like that. But from Rocky, that that time I actually was photographing my cousin's wedding out in California. So so I left Colorado and hit hit the road heading west. And that was the first long haul of this this trip. So I drove out to um, out to California, out to Southern California, photographed her wedding. From there, I went to a couple places out there. I visited um, Salton Sea. I went to, I went north, I went up to like John Muir Woods and Point Reyes National Seashore, you know, a couple of places, you know, just again, just places that I had heard about over the years and things I wanted to do and just kind of kept going. Came back to Colorado. Um, I still use Colorado as my home base. Still to this day, I have a UPS box where I use as, as the business address. So I would come back. Um, the beauty of UPS boxes is that they will ship your mail to you any place if you need it. And then every, you know, I tried to come back maybe once a month so I could kind of 
you know, do whatever I needed to do. You know, if I had a presentation I was giving, I tried to schedule at the same time. You, know, you still need to, you know, stupid things like dentist appointments, that kind of thing. So I came back and stayed in St. Brain State Park, which was which is along Interstate 25, kind of outside of Longmont, Colorado. And while I was there, the uh, and it, this this will be another one of the green stories. So while I was there, Richard, who um, is the guy that I met up in Rocky, he actually surprised me. He he told me he was down there. He was doing the same thing. So I should mention that he was actually doing the same thing. He was traveling full time in his own trailer. Was his motivation photography as well? Are you kindred spirits on that front? Um, he does, he is into photography. So he, he's, and he's into outdoors. He's into a lot of the same stuff. You know, we, there, we definitely have a lot of kindred awesome. spirits there in regards to what we enjoy doing. So he surprised me at the park. And as we were leaving, he was heading back to Louisiana where he's from. And I was heading out to New Jersey to visit my mom for Thanksgiving. And as we're leaving, he's like, so where's your, um, where's your dump tank hose? Um, which is, you know, a big part of, um, <laughs> doing this so i don't know you may have read the story already so no when I no i just i just know where i think it's going and this is really going to tell this is really going to show how green i was with it when i bought the rv the guy that gave me the tour on the rv told me he's like you're going to go you're going to need to buy a hose to so that you can you know empty your gray and black water tanks okay fine i know that was part of doing this i kind of had to get over that pretty quickly but i did had never like i said i'd never been in an rv nobody i knew had one I figured, all right, well, I'll go to Home Depot and figure out what I can fit on the RV. And I bought an air dryer hose, you know, the kind of <laughs> on the back of a, a dryer, you know, like a home dryer. It worked perfect. It was actually literally the same size and everything. And it worked really well. The only downside was that you had to hold it there. So as long as you held it, you never even touched anything. It, and it was light. It compacted down. And Rich was like, where's your hose? I'm like, oh, here. And he's just laughing at me. And he was just like, we need to go to Camping World. He's like, we need to buy you. I was like, oh, they actually sell tubes for this. So, I mean, it's it, maybe it's a blonde moment. Maybe it's my naivety about you know what I was into. But it was it was a, it's a funny story, you know, about all that. So, um, it's a learning experience, and I'm glad that it was still clean, holding on to it. Yeah, <laughs> we did throw it out that day. We, we we said goodbye to it. We took some pictures of it. I figured, you know, someday when I get the book together about all my travels, it'll 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 make the book. So no kidding. Yeah, I asked you. So anyway, so from there, so I went out to New Jersey. There were a couple places I wanted to see out there being from New Jersey. I didn't know that, you know, now all of a sudden I'm staying in RV parks and in a state where, you know, it's my home state. So that was kind of interesting to see the state from a different perspective. And then after that, I actually went down to Louisiana to, um, to catch back up with Richard. And the funny thing is that so this is one of those things I was mentioning about, you know, I had a list. I had all these places I wanted to see, um, you know, most of them are big, huge, grand places, you know, Olympic National Park and Acadia National Park and, you know, you know huge mammals and, you know, you know, see Alaska and that kind of stuff. Louisiana was never on my radar ever. It just, I had not heard much about it. And because he was from there, I spent some time down there. I spent about six weeks that December into January and just discovered it. it's a beautiful state it has a lot of amazing wildlife beautiful birds gorgeous you know cypress swamps and the bayous i mean there's some really pretty things down there so again it reinforced to me that i was on i was doing the right thing i was discovering this this country i was discovering what's out there all the things that you can experience so while while i was down there we decided that we were going to join forces and travel together so 
And remember, I had only met him three months earlier. So most people who have lived their, you know, uh, most of their adult lives together can't live together in an RV. And here we are, we barely knew each other, really never dated. And we decided to buy an RV together. We sold mine, we sold his, um, we actually kept his trailer, but we sold mine, we sold his truck and we sold the Jeep. And we bought a 39 foot class A, which is like the big bus style. And we still have that to today. So we still travel in it. And um, yeah, it's a, it's been kind of a, a whirlwind since then. Well, it's so, a great lit, litmus test for the relationship for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that in itself. So it's not always easy. I mean, it's, you know, I figured, I think we figured it's like 350 square feet, but you have, you know, the world at your, at your doorstep. So it's, there's a lot to do, a lot to see, plenty of space to get outdoors. Oh yeah. You're immersed in it that way. Mm -hmm. So did you drive to Minnesota when you went up? No, I did not. I actually uh, flew up there. You flew up. And I assume. I would actually, I would like to. So one of the things that I've discovered. um, So I guess real quick, I'll mention that. um, So between buying that and May of 2016, you know, we did a little bit of track. We did some traveling, um, spent some more time in Louisiana. We went up to, um, went out to Yosemite to photograph Firefall. That was the number one thing on my list. Um, And that was kind of where I. Firefall? So that Sorry. is that's the light. Are you talking yeah. about the light ex- yep. at the summer? Yeah, so yeah. I just learned of that. Kind of lights up for just about ten days in February. Okay, um, right on. I had been trying to get out there for about five years, and this was the fifth time, and it, it was it was perfect. I had fantastic weather. We had just it was an amazing, amazing trip. But I had figured that was going to be kind of the culmination of my travels. That was going to be at that point. I was going to end it, and we kept going. Um, with the plan that we were going to spend the summer in Alaska, and we did. So May of that year, I did some some traveling. I actually, so he was still doing some stuff down in Louisiana. I decided to come back to Colorado to take care of some stuff before we spent the summer up in Alaska. Stopped in a few places in Texas and I think Missouri along that trip. And then from Colorado, we drove north and drove all the way up into Alaska, spent the summer up there, drove all over that state. We figured we saw all but one of the Walmarts in Alaska. I'm not sure if that's a, <laughs> how big of an accomplishment that is, but yeah, well, the whole lot. Um, so for our listeners, uh, <laughs> so that they know, and I assume this is why. Maybe I'm wrong, but I know that a lot of young people that I know that travel Walmart, you can stay there. Is that why you saw them, or no? That's, yeah, that's part of it. Um, you, I mean, Walmart you can park there really if there's if it's convenient. They if there's they, nowhere else to go. Right. So. Okay. Most Walmart, some towns. No, sorry, not not in the Walmart. I want to say not in the Walmart, but you can (laughs) you can camp in the parking lot with an RV. They permit that. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, So Walmart's will allow you to camp there. Many towns, however, have started putting restrictions on them. Um, The town ordinances won't allow you to stay overnight in a Walmart parking lot. So even though the the corporate entity will say, yeah, fine, we don't care about that. But um, you still have to check the town ordinances. Like, for example, Fort Collins and Loveland here in Colorado won't allow you to stay there overnight. But in Alaska, because there are no places really to stay, you know, you've got big long hauls between destinations. A lot of them will just say, yeah, we don't care. So yeah, so we saw all, but there's there's a Walmart on Kodiak Island. And obviously, we can drive you to Kodiak Island. So. <laughs> Free, right? And your resources are there. I mean, it's maybe not the most appealing backdrop but if it's just for sleeping and then you're on the road again exactly there's some log- common sense to it there's yeah. some logic to it and we sure. always made sure that you know we would run into the store and, and restock on food we always made sure that we gave back to it that's why they're doing it they're making you know they're they're benefiting from it as well so we did always make sure that we were given back in that way nice 
Now, is that the trip that you ended up getting your muskox images? No. So muskox was first last September. I had to. Oh, was it? Yeah. So it's fresh. So that wasn't too long before I met you then. No, so that was only a couple of weeks. On the muskox. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, that, that was one of my last big ungulates that I was searching for. I am chomping at the bit, and I, I mean, <laughs> we, I, want, I think we I don't all mind are. sharing it. Yeah, I don't mind sharing it with our listeners if you're okay with that. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know where you. I think Ron had said where you'd gone, but I've researched different places. But uh, flying to Nome and trying it there was that where you went? That is where I I, I photographed them. And how was the color there in, in that time of year at Nome? Um, so I actually got pretty lucky. So before I planned that trip, as I do with any trip for a place that I've never been to, is I'll do a lot of research, web research, I'll call chambers of commerce, visitor centers. Um, now, Nome is in a terribly big town, so there's not a lot of resources. But I managed, when I called the visitor center up there, I managed to get a really, really helpful girl on the phone who told me all about, you know, birds and what to expect. And I asked her about fall color. She's like, oh, I'm not sure about that. So I was up in, I was leading a workshop in Lake Clark the first over Labor Day weekend. So my options were either to go to Nome before or after. Um, It was, a, I think it was a little bit less expensive after. So that was why I, I chose that direction. And I got there, it was the peak of color. It was the absolute peak of fall color on the tundra and the blueberries were everywhere and they were huge. And you could just, you just grab gobs, you know, handfuls of them. It was just an amazing trip. So yeah, you know, I managed to kind of time it right, good research and kind of really lucked out on that. Did you have any luck with other species on that, on that trip? I did look for um, fox. There's supposed to be some red fox around up there and I never did see any of them. I did find most of the birds had migrated out already. And that's the one downside of going in September is that you won't see too many birds. There were still some swans around, but I, I kind of wanted to get a, a, a handle on the area as well because you can't drive into Nome, but Nome actually has a road system where there's the three roads that lead out to smaller villages and just wanted to kind of explore and get an idea of what, what it was like. But the muskox was the primary goal of what I wanted to photograph while I was there. Right. And success on that? Really good success. I figured I saw probably about 55, including about 10 at the airport when I when I was flying out. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, they were right there, right next to the runway. It was kind of crazy. Uh, any caribou at all in that area? I didn't see any. No, there's supposed to be caribou up there. I'm not sure why we didn't see any. And I did head out on all three of the roads. Not to the end of them because, you know, each one's, I think, about 70 miles and they're all dirt roads. So you can't drive too terribly fast on them but but they're supposed to be caribou out there so well it makes sense depends Mm -hmm. how skittish they are i suppose but and i would love to go back there in the winter time or at least when there's some snowfall and photograph some of the muskox with some you know nice you know blowing snow and so i would love to see the finish of the iditarod someday and so in I've, i've followed it closely for years so it's february or March. That's I'm embarrassed about that because I'm I'm dialed in when the Iditarod's on. I'm following. I think, it, I think webs- it's like the second week of March. Yeah, the website you can even follow the competitors and where they are on it now. It, it highlights everything, and, and there's a lot of history to some of these great athletes and their teams, which are very athletic, obviously as well, and their strategies. I love it, but I'd love to be there. I'd be so cool to be there at the finish. So I wonder. I mean, the muskox are still there. It's winter, March, in Nome. It's still winter. Maybe. You could sister both up. 
see the Iditarod, do some fun stuff with that, and then take off and find the muskox. Well, the Iditarod would be really nice. I have huskies, so uh, you know, right. I would love to. See, yeah, so I would love to see see the Iditarod. I'm not sure the the one downside would be the length of daylight. That would be the only downside to that. True enough. Yeah, it would be a challenge. I mean, but you're still a few months in past the solstice, so there might be some. We'd have to research that. Maybe mm-hmm. we need to work together on this and and do I'd some winter muskox and sled dogs <laughs> and and just the celebration of the Iditarod finish. That'd be fun. I've to be heard there. so. So what they told us when we were there is that it's it, the town is like one big party, basically. Oh, yeah. That's why a lot of people go. Is that it's not so much that they're racers or that they're mushers. It's it's that they're there because it's a celebration. It's a party. <laughs> Yeah, that would probably. be. I would think that would be the limiting factor is that being the most popular time to travel up there. Of course, it might allow for more flights going in and out, but at the same time, places to stay and accommodations while you're there that might get a little bit difficult. The two most expensive and most difficult times to visit Nome are during the Iditarod finish and June when the birds are kind of at their peak. Huh. Yeah. I am I am so happy that you got muskox and hope someday to join that elite club of photographers that have had the experience with them. And not that it's elite as in quality, but just it's a rare opportunity and just to share space with those animals that have been around forever and, and are such a unique creature to, to survive in that landscape. And just to look at definitely them. were. I mean, if anything looks prehistoric out there, it's muskox to me. So northern Minnesota, did you, I assume northern, did you go for owls? I was actually going for pine martins. Oh, okay. I know most people go up there for owls. I'm, I'm more of a mammal photographer. I do a lot of bird photography, but my goal mm-hmm. is to, I, I have the goal of I want to photograph and get good photographs of every mammal in North America if I can. Good well, success. So that's part of the goal, to photograph every mammal in North America. Nope. Wow, yeah. that's and cool. then and, and the challenge to that is going to be the little the little guys, all the mice and bulls and that kind of thing. That's going to be the challenge. But I'm pretty close on the big mammals. I I figured I, I think I have six left on the big mammals. Now you have if you're going North American now you have to throw the jaguar into that. Even even if you're going U.S. because there's now jaguar in Arizona. Yes, I, know. <laughs> I guess technically that could be true. <laughs> so the water shrew. Or the, yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be the true test of your photographic abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one I mean, the, the ones I have left are all the real hard ones. So, yeah, I don't <laughs> think it's gonna happen anytime soon. But well, those guys are cool. tiny. I've only seen one, and that was just a crick crossing and just got lucky. But no photographs were taken of the of the water shrew. <laughs> Don, did you get the pine martins? I did. I had okay. two two afternoons with them. Good. And okay. in total, I think I sat and waited for about six hours to one of the spots where they they are known to make an appearance. And the first day was about a two-hour wait and maybe 10 minutes with them. And the second day was a four-hour wait and about five minutes. So, And then there were a couple that would kind of run around in the trees in the background, but they weren't comfortable coming closer to the road. Okay. So, but fun. it was – and they are just – adorable little animals and i've seen them a lot you see them a lot crossing roads here in colorado you know running along creeks and stuff but they're usually a, a back end running away from you or darting through the trees so. yeah, yeah. part of being a wildlife photographer is having to know where to go right and there are places as as you can have experienced by your big adventure across north america there are these locations that you can find and potentially 
get mm-hmm. great images. And I have a Pine Martin place too. It's not my place, but that I know where to go. And it's become so popular. People are flying from all over the world to come and see them now. Right. In the winter. But I'm, I'm glad you got them. They're super cute to photograph. They are and adorable little animals. Vicious, but they're adorable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can seem so cute. And then when two of them, you know, if there's any kind of confrontation, wow. The sounds they make, and, and they certainly sound ferocious for their size. Yep. What was the what was the highlight? Now, obviously, that initial trip, that 15-month trip, that wasn't all the travel that you've done, but what was the highlight on your trip? In that 15 months? Mm-hmm. You know, for all the, the really cool animals I saw, I know people have asked me, they're like, what was your favorite thing? And it's it, it was all of it. I mean, it was just the experience to, to, to be able to have that freedom and that flexibility to just kind of go wherever you wanted to go. And if the weather wasn't good, you went someplace else. And if the weather was was good and you had good photo opportunities, you stayed. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience because you had everything with you. You worked on the road. You just you just kind of kept working. I would say Firefall was, was definitely a highlight. That was a pretty spectacular event to see. It doesn't happen every year. And since I've been up there, Yosemite has instituted a parking permit. So you, now you actually have to I think it's a lottery system to get a parking permit because it has become so crowded. Seeing Alaska from the road was was pretty cool. You know, I got to go out to Wrangell St. Elias. One of the really cool things we did is that we stayed um, in a uh, pullout for a couple of days just outside of Kenai Fjords National Park, right next to, you know, the, the river that, that flows out of, out of the park and just these gorgeous mountains. There's just so much beauty out there. There's so much to see that, you know, to kind of now narrow it down to just one, but I would think Firefall was definitely one of the one of the big highlights. Nice. So I have to ask, being a writer, thinking of these projects and putting things together, I love the story of this trip. I love the 15 months, the destinations, your answer, amen to that. All these different experiences put together, the culmination of those made the trip. That's the highlight that you did this. Where's the book? So it's going to be a book in three parts. Part one is almost finished. I was supposed to have it finished last year and didn't quite get to it. It will be done this year with the hope of getting it out early next year. That's great. I'm glad to hear you're doing that because to tell the story, the fact that you did it, I mean, there's so many ways you could do it. You could do it as a natural history book with what you've seen, but also the personal anecdotes of your experience would be awesome to hear you know, with your writing ability, what it was like, the highlights, like take people along. You did it and it was great. You know, my, my vision of the book is to, is to encourage people to get outdoors. Don't be fearful of, you know, of what your dreams are, you know, pursue them. Life is short. I know I've, I feel like a broken record in the last six years saying that, but it, it is, it's short. You don't know what tomorrow is going to, going to throw your way. And it's also, you know, it's a love story in some ways. It's, you know, it's got that aspect to it. And then, it, you know, just the nature part of it. It's just, you know, I want to share that. I want to share that passion. Um, I do, pro- my goal ideally would be to actually have two books. One would be the the actual story of it that people could sit and read. And then the second part of it would be a you know, coffee table type book that um, with all the photographs. So mm-hmm. I think I actually just last night, I totaled up the photos. I think it was about 76,000 photos that I took on that trip. So I've got a right. little bit of editing to still do. So, I'm nowhere here. <laughs> Gonna have to pare that down a little job. bit. <laughs> that's, but that's, that, that's kind of what I envision that is that it's a kind of a two-part package to have the, the visual story of it being in the coffee table book and then the just the experience. You know, what just like you asked, you know, what led me up to doing it to begin with, the kind of the heartbreak that 
that drove me to that point of, of taking the leap of faith that I could do it, the experience of doing it, and then kind of the outcome of, of where I am now of, you know, the things that happened on the road that kind of, you know, molded my life today. So. And then who do you plan on having play you in the movie? <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> if it can keep funding me to live on the road, then I'd be happy, you know, however it takes. There, there if, was you know, a, somebody wants a, to do a movie about it and they can pay me so we can keep traveling and keep experiencing these things and maybe come up with a second book. I don't know. So yeah. Richard's awesome. had some recently has had some heartbreak in his own life. And I, I, I can already see the, the second, the second story kind of developing. So then we'll see about them. Well, that question is leading. I mean, I, I mean, I have something I want to say before that, but I have to ask when the next adventure is coming. But there, there was somebody who did that format you're discussing. Charlie Russell uh, is a grizzly scientist, researcher uh, from Western Canada who went to Kamchatka, Russia and built a cabin there and spent years living with the grizzly bears in this remote wilderness by himself and then with his female partner. And they did a coffee table book as well as a written book. And both are worth having to see all the images, but to read their their experience through the the comprehensive uh, book was was very. It was I preferred that actually, but the package of the two was ideal. So it's you you know the template's there, and it makes sense for an adventure like this with all these levels to it to do it. And I can't wait to see it. So I'll be you know the website obviously on Instagram or somewhere when you when it's finished and available. I'm assuming you're going to promote it, and market it, and it'll be obvious when we can grab our copy and, and absolutely get, I've even, hear more detail i've even started um i just today finalized the info for a presentation i'm going to give in a couple of weeks and it's the first time i'm actually formally putting a presentation together around around all of this so i'll do it again in a couple of months with another another group but i feel like that's kind of one of the things that's just going to start forcing me to i can't keep putting it off it's got to get done so it'll be out there excellent one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and I know, sorry, you, uh, we've been talking about the travel and adventure, but there's also, it, with your passion with wildlife, you've been involved also with the North American Nature Photographers Association with with NAMPA. What, what led you to be a part of that group? I always like to be surrounded by peers. I've always heard that you know, the best way to get better at what you do is to be around people who are who are good at, at it, that are better than you. And I feel like Nampa is just an organization of amazing photographers. There's just a lot of, you know, whether they're hobbyists or professional, it's a, an organization that's a, a great mix of the two. You know, some really big names, George Left and, you know, Joe Soltari, you know, they're, they're really involved with it. They, they're always at the different conferences giving presentations. So it's a great way to network. It's just really inspirational. I like being around that inspiration. It kind of drives me to just keep getting better. You know, so I think ultimately that's that's the biggest reason that I joined. I've been getting more and more involved over the last few years. You know, I work on their marketing team. So, you know, kind of help promoting the organization. I was nominated. I'll, I'll be running for their board this year. So that was something that I was pretty flattered that they, they somebody thought that I was um ready to, to kind of help lead the organization as well. So I'm hoping that kind of pans out and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep staying active with them. What's the membership now of NAMPA? The, the membership members. Yeah. Roughly. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I want to say 1500 for some reason, stick it in my head, but I'm not sure if that's the correct number. I can certainly provide that information to you. Is it, is it as simple as, as people paying for a membership? 
and yes. joining. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. So it's an annual membership due membership amount. And then from that point, you can be as involved as you want to be. Um, they do a lot of educational programs. They do a lot of webinars. There's just a lot of benefits for, for members. So there's a lot of learning opportunities. They have a national conference every other year, which is um, the summit, which is actually going to be held next month in Vegas. Um, they started doing something last year called Celebration, which is kind of a smaller conference. Last year they did in Grand Teton. They'll, help, they'll hold it again next year. Like I said, they do webinars. They do um, regional events where you can actually go out with, with a photographer, you know, like a, a photographer-led field trip type thing, um, right. learn about photography. They do, they have discounts on insurance, um, which is always you know, kind of a big thing, you know, whether you're looking for camera gear insurance or a couple different options there. There's a lot of information on their website. So there's there's a lot of resources. They did, they actually have a foundation that raises money for scholarships for kids, kind of get them involved in nature photography because it's certainly the future of it. Kids aren't spending anywhere near enough time outside these days. Um, so I think that's another big big thing that they, they really encourage. That's awesome. Anything to get young people engaged with nature in the outdoors mm -hmm. and, and develop an appreciation is, is, is a good thing. Where's their home base, if you don't mind me asking? So their office, their main office is out of Chicago. Um, okay. But basically, so like the, the woman that leads the marketing committee doesn't live in Chicago. We're all kind of all over the place. Right, right. Network that way. That makes sense. So you brought up Lake Clark a couple of times. You now lead a workshop for coastal brown bears in Lake Clark National Park in Alaska. Is that right? I do. Well, I saw it on your website. So yes. <laughs> so that's not a question. But how how long have you been doing that? I want to say this is the fifth year. I'll be taking a, a group up there. You know, it's it's become more and more popular. So I think there you know there's more and more competition out there for for something like that. But you know, a small group if somebody benefits, you know, that's that's kind of the the beauty of what I like. I like to keep it keep it small so that it can be a little bit more of a one on one. We had a lot of fun last year. We had a really great group of people last year. We just had. Because yeah, there's a lot of downtime, you know. I've gone up at both times. I've gone up in June, which I love. I love June in Lake Clark. I think that's the, the time of year where you have a better chance of seeing the really little spring cubs. But most people want to photograph the the salmon salmon season. You know, watching the bears chase after salmon and things. So the last few years, I think this is the third year in a row I've been up during um, during the salmon run in the late summer. So that's always exciting. But there tends to be a lot of downtime because in that time of the year, that's all the bears are looking for. They are looking for, for salmon. So if it's high tide when the salmon aren't running, or they're still running, but the bears can't, can't actually catch them as easy, you tend to just kind of sit around. And you're looking for other things. Um, we go out looking for red fox. We go out looking for bald eagles. We had um, otters one year that we were able to photograph. So you never quite know what else is. Oh, we actually had black bears last year. That was really surprising to have a, a black bear sow with three cubs. We get photos of those on beaches very often. Uh -huh. um, so you never know, quite know what's going to come up. But I do encourage people to, you know, let, let's stay out. You know, let's, you have to be out there to experience it. It's, and while we were doing it, we had some, you know, good times and you know, laughs and silly stuff that we do too. So, Absolutely. How many people do you take on your workshop? So the, the group is um, maxed out at six, including myself. So, so we, like I said, I like to keep it kind of small. That allows us the so we get driven around in carts um, and the cart, the max of the cart can hold is six people. So that means that, that our group doesn't ever get split up. So I kind of like keeping it to that smaller number. Makes sense. What's, what's next on the plate? What do you look forward to in 2019? My cats say no more adventures. So, so to let you know, so I traveled. So when I started on the road, I traveled with two huskies and two cats. 
One of the Huskies passed away while I was traveling. The cats surprisingly did pretty well. They like kind of sitting up on the dash and watching things. I, I, I wish they could kind of tell me what they, what things they saw while we weren't watching. But anyway, I'll never know that. But next, next big adventures. I mean, I, I have a list that, you know, ideally, I think what we'd like to do next, um, now that we know more, now that we know some of the opportunities and ways that you can, one, make money on the road, as well as save money on the road. That was one of the things that I really found that it can be very expensive to travel that way. It can be, you know, as cheap or as expensive as you want it to be, depending upon where you stay and, you know, how much you cook, you know, your meals at home, that kind of thing. Um, but since then, we've actually discovered things like camp hosting is a great option that if we wanted to stay someplace for a longer period of time, we could certainly do that where we, most campgrounds need, um, need camp hosts, especially during the summer. And you don't, so each person would work about 20 hours and then that gives you lots of time to do other things. The other thing that we've talked about doing is, um, spending a year in Alaska. So we would love to do that. So we actually get to see all the seasons just from, you know, arriving up there in May and probably staying through two summer seasons and then coming back the following fall. So that's been on, on our list. And then, you know, there's things like I would love to do maybe six months in Florida um, where you get there, you know, maybe like January and stay through May or June during the whole birding season. Again, you know, a little bit more of a long term type thing, because when I went on the road before, I only thought I was going to do it for six months. I was kind of like, oh, my God, I got to go everywhere. So I'd go someplace and I was on to, on to the next one. Most people, when they travel full time in an RV, they kind of start, as Mark said at the beginning of, of, of um, the interview, most people will start at a starting point and kind of just keep working their way around. I was working through a list, so I wasn't necessarily making it the most efficient from a cost perspective or a time perspective, because if I wanted to photograph Firefall, that only happens for 10 days. If I want to photograph a bobcat in Yellowstone, that only happens for about a month. Um, so you have to be there at those certain times. I think the next time that we, we hit the road, that it'll be it'll be planned out a little bit different so that we can spend longer periods of time in areas, as well as not kind of bouncing all over the place as much. There's a lot of great advice there. I mean, you've experienced it. So there's so much you could share with people who are interested in doing that kind of adventure. And, and I've, I'm well I'm familiar with the camp hosts. I've never done it. But if it was a destination where you'd want to spend that duration of time, that makes perfect sense mm -hmm. uh, to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. For most national parks, or it's a month, or is it three weeks or a month? Can you do shorter duration, or is it a minimum of a month stay for hosts? Do you know? My guess is all the parks are probably a little bit different. Two of the campgrounds that I'm familiar with here in Estes Park re actually require or, or ask of you to stay the whole summer. So oh, no you would actually be there from May to the beginning of October, end of September. So you would do a whole whole season that way. In, in Ontario, one of my favorite places to go, it's only about three hours from where I live, is Algonquin Provincial Park. Mm -hmm. And those campgrounds have a host and they rotate. I don't know if they can sign on for longer than a month, if that's an option, but I know it's typically a month up there. But I, have no, I haven't researched it for Alaskan national parks and places like that. But that's, you know, what you've experienced, certainly a lot to share that of potential in your book. That way too. Right. And there's a lot of, I mean, there are, you know, camp hosting's one way, um, BLM lands, you can, you know, you can just kind of, most BLM lands, you can kind of park wherever you want. They, they don't have formal campgrounds per se. Um, so there's a little bit more where you don't have to pay for it out there, but you're going to be remote. You're not going to have internet. You're not going to have cell service. Um, so you give up those things. That's what made it difficult to be on the road and working from the road is that I had to make sure I was within if I didn't have cell service or internet, you know, Wi-Fi signal, 
at the RV, I had to be at least you know, fairly close to it. If I didn't, that kind of start, that could potentially become an issue if you're trying to work from the road. And then even then we're dealing with large photo files that need a decent bandwidth. I remember going one morning um, into a coffee shop and ran into probably about 10 other photographers that I saw out that morning. And we all wound up doing the same thing on the coffee shops network. And it just, it just conked out. Um, it just couldn't handle all the, all the work that we were trying to get done. You know, again, that's another learning thing. Richard and I both learned he's a little bit more into the technology aspect of it. So he did a lot of research around, you know, how do we get better signals? You know, there's boosters you can get, you know, a little bit stronger so you can get better signals. So there's a lot of, you know, those aspects too. It's just to kind of make the conveniences a little bit better. So we found, you know, a couple different products out there that were really good about helping us increase the signal, um, finding a signal a little bit better. So you know, there's, there's those types of aspects too that you need to, need to research to, to work from the road. I think people that aren't working on the road and just you know, purely retired and enjoying it, don't worry about that as much. But the other, th the other one that I just recently discovered is, is um, something called Harvest Hosts, which is kind of a cool concept that if you have an RV where you're completely self-contained, so therefore you have all your water, you have your electricity and everything, um, we do have solar panels on our RV. Um, that's certainly something that helps us out quite a bit. But Harvest Host actually allows you, it's basically like like uh, vineyards and farms that will allow you to come park on their property overnight for free, and it's an annual membership. So I, I think they raised it up to $80 or $100 this year. Um, but you pay this annual membership, and you make plans to go to these different locations. As long as you're self-contained and don't need any services from them, they'll say, yep, go ahead, park out there. You know, as a photographer, I could see that being a, a really interesting photographer and writer. I could see that being a really interesting option to say, you know, hey, I'd be you know, willing to you know, do a sunset shoot out here for a couple of hours, um, get some photos for you guys, maybe do a little travel travel story about it. So I could see that being um, another option that we we pursue in the coming years. So there's a whole network of these locations. Mm -hmm. It's so, called Harvest. It seems to be growing every day. So. Sorry, Harvest. Harvest hosts. Harvest host. Wow. That is very cool. Mm -hmm. I had not heard of that either. I hadn't either. That's better than Walmart parking lot for sleeping. It is much better than Walmart parking lots. <laughs> Nothing against Walmart, but. Right, right. Um, yeah. No, no. There, I've had, you know, again, in the, in the book, I, I've had some interesting stories at, at Walmart parking lots. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, I can't wait to, to read this book. And so no pressure, you know, but get going on it let's let's see this <laughs> and i'm glad you're doing talks on it because those are just inspire you to start i mean maybe you're already further along than this but piecing the images together and, and creating the storyline and 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 editing those images so that they're there and ready right. to do right i mean that's a big project like from the number you said it's a monster project yeah it's been a great story and i know i know we've only touched the surface of it which is why i'm glad there's a book or books mm -hmm coming out on it because yeah. it's part of, telling and, part and inspirational reason, part of the reason too that i wanted to do um kind of a coffee table book is that i feel like the story even though there were a lot of fun times on the road i do feel like the story itself is about you know what led up to getting on the road hitting the road some of those you know those, those green stories that happened in those first few months you know and then from that point it just became you know i could see it kind of getting a little bit repetitive and you know we went to this place i photographed this and so but Muir Woods, I mean, I, I've had the privilege of being there, you know, trying to explain to somebody what it's like walking along among those giant redwoods is not like being there. 
And so you have visuals and you, you've got the writing ability to help take people there. But not only that, it will encourage them to be courageous and adventurous and do that. I think that's what's exciting about your particular story is that it was totally new, but you did it, you know, and it was life changing. And I think it's the perfect tale. As well as being the birthplace of the modern conservation movement, especially in the U.S., you know, that's, that was the birthplace of the national park system. Yellowstone was the first, but it started with John Muir and his meeting with Teddy Roosevelt out in California, in Northern California. So, yeah, that's, there's, a, there's a lot of different layers to that story. Mm-hmm. Thanks for adding that. Yeah. So I'm excited to see where you take it. <laughs> I, <too. laughs> I, will, I will be following and, and waiting. And, and again, no pressure rush because it's, you know, quality first, put it together, have fun with it. But. Yeah, but I know a publisher that might want to publish it. That's kind of my next, I think that's cool. Oh, there has to tasks. be. There has Somebody's got to gotta start setting some deadlines for me. <laughs> well, and, and giving funny. you an advance. Yeah, that too. Right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, there has to be. This is a great, a great story. I love it. So thanks for sharing it. Thanks for scratching the surface of it with us and our, our audience today. Much appreciated for your time. And we wish you the best of luck and, and look forward to following on your social media, what your next adventure turns out to be. If you do that longer trip to Alaska, you know, it's always been a draw of mine too. my only struggle is what you alluded to earlier in that those short winter days. Do you stay? I mean, the northern lights, I'm all over that. But do you stay the whole winter? I mean, it, there's a test to that. And of course, Alaskans, you know, so many of them embrace that. And I, I admire and respect that. So anyway, I look forward to seeing where it leads you. No, thanks. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing about Dawn's successful career and her passions as a wildlife photographer as much as we have. You can see more of her work on her website at dawnwilsonphotography.com. And links to our work will be easy to find in our show notes, as will images that she's talked about today at wildandexposed.com. Thanks again, Don, for joining us this week and for sharing your story with our listeners. In closing, I want to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. I would also like to take a moment and ask that no matter which podcast platform you're listening to is on, to make sure to click on the follow or subscribe icon, it's free, and to give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs up, as those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. You can also see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, and on our YouTube channel at Wild and Exposed Podcast, and on our website, wildandexposed.com. Until next time, You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.